Let me ask this. D does anyone here hold to the young earth position? It's okay if you do. I, there's no, no ridicule. I mean, seriously. Uh, I don't... I, what's that? Does anyone hold to a young earth view? What does that mean? That the earth is six to 10,000 years old. Okay. And the universe as well. Okay. I thought you might. So I, I did want to put that out. So, I mean, the, one of the reasons I've never really like talked about this a lot is because for me, it's just not like one of those, I don't want to say it's not important. I understand why, you know, people think it is important and it comes down to what we started to talk about last time which is when death comes into the world. Um, you know, that's really where the, the issue gets sort of thorny. We'll talk about this more in the other book. But the, the, the question is, if it's an old earth, then that means there must have been cycle of life long before Adam and Eve showed up. That means there must have been death long before they showed up. But doesn't death come into the world when Adam and Eve fall into sin? So that's kind of the issue that young earth tends to solve. It's that, well, there are these few days of creation there is no death, but there doesn't need to be death because the earth is young. But then Adam and Eve fall into sin and then death does come into the world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, no, the Hebrew calendar goes back, you know, it, it's, it's real, you know, or whatever. But, um, but I mean, from my point of view, someone who holds to a young earth position is not some kind of enemy of mine or anything like a theological enemy of mine. Um, and I've kind of been in different places you know, on some of these questions as well. Uh, so for me, it's not a gospel level, red alert, DEFCON 1. Remember, the lower the DEFCON letter, the more number, the more serious it is, okay? It's not DEFCON 5. So like for, what's that? It's like golf. It's like golf, exactly. So for me, it's not a DEFCON 1 issue. For some people, it is. They think, I mean, Ken Ham, for example, or really most of the Missouri Synod now would hold that, you know, it is a DEFCON 1 issue because, the gospel's at stake because of when death comes into the world and that's the result of the fall. And if you don't have a real Adam and Eve and all these sort of dominoes sort of fall. Um, for me, I don't think that the, that the Christian faith itself depends on all of those understandings. Uh, I think that there are some non-negotiables non-negotiables there, like the fact that God created the, the universe. But, you know, my issue has been, well, what do I do with all the really smart people that tell me evolution is just a fact? Or what do I do with all the old people, you know, the, the, all the people that, not the old people, although they might be old, but all the people who tell me that the, that the universe must be old and the earth must be old. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and remember, this author held, has held the three main positions, which would be young earth creationism, old earth creationism, and then essentially uh, guided evolution, okay? Old earth creationism being the, the universe is old, but God intervened at special times. And that's what the six days of Genesis is about. And evolution is that God is guiding the process, but you know, there, there's also, so y'all know, and <laughs> it's somewhere in this debate as well, people will debate the meaning of the word yom, which is the word, the Hebrew word for day. And so there are people who say, no, 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 Every time yom is used, it's a reference to a 24-hour period. And the, there are other people who say, well, actually here it's used in a metaphorical sense, and it could mean a period of time. So that's a big part of the debate. But I don't think that there's sufficient evidence one way or another. The Hebrew language actually only has about 8,000 words in it, which, which actually isn't a lot. Um, I think English is probably, our use is probably something like 50,000 or something. So um, generally speaking, I don't think that there is 
linguistic evidence to prove that point one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. Other kind of uh, irritability things could, could a, a day, the experience of a day. Yeah. And so, so yeah. So our 24 hour time period just what would have taken place, something that I can try to rectify. Yeah. So James Tor, um, he spoke at our church before I knew what a big deal he was. Um, and uh, so, you know, who he is. He teaches like microchemistry, something at Rice. Uh, He's one of the world's leading scholars in nanotechnology. He literally designs molecular-sized robots, okay? Um, he's kind of a genius, and he's a very well, he's becoming well-known globally as because he's a very dedicated Christian. Grew up, he's ethnically Jewish, but became, you know, is a born-again Christian. Believe he goes and teaches at Westview Baptist, but that, does, that doesn't mean y'all need to go join that church, okay? But um, I know that Lisa and Daniel shared with me a podcast he did, maybe just last month. Maybe it was just four episodes or something, but I have not listened to it yet. But he did interview the author of the second book we're looking at, Joshua Swamidas, and um, I'd like to listen to that. Uh, Jim Torr's point of view on this whole evolution question is that everyone explains evolution from a 30,000-foot level but actually that's the wrong way to approach it. What you have to explain if you're going to defend evolution is you, def you have to explain it from the, from the bottom up, not from the top down. So yeah, we can see fossil patterns and such, but what you're really arguing with evolution is that at the cellular level, things are happening. Things are changing in a way that one species turns into another. That's what you have to prove if you're really gonna successfully prove evolution. And then I asked him about young earth creationism or what, where he held to. He doesn't really come down one way or another. He spoke about a theory in a book. I don't know if anyone knows the name of it. Uh, someone told me about it just the other day as well. But it's, it's a theory that basically talks about um, that both can be true in, in, in a sense, uh, that it's not just that the universe has the appearance of being old, that it really is old, but that things also happened relatively recently, but due to how we understand, I don't know, that, like you said, the theory of relativity or something that, you know, that time is just different, you know, so that early in the universe, time was different. And I, 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 for me, every time I start to sort of go into these conversations, though, I kind of think, I just don't think my own view, okay, this is just my own view. I just don't think that's what Genesis 1 is wanting to communicate. Um, I, I don't think that we need to read it in that way uh, for it to be true. Um, but I do hold the line at Adam and Eve. I don't know how you can read a lot of the Bible, much, maybe all of the Bible, without a historical Adam and Eve. So that's where I'm at in this kind of conversation. Um, but let me just offer his, um, you know, let me offer a summary, actually, that he offers, because I don't remember, did we talk, I don't remember if we talked about the biblical accounts of origin, Oh, yeah, we did, because I remember we talked about how he uh, talked about how um, Genesis 3 could be similar to other ancient literature, which speaks of an idyllic age that is lost. So that's a common sort of myth that you'll find in, uh, that you'll find in ancient literature. The idea, it's, it's kind of like what we think about, you know, the, the Eisenhower years, you know, <laughs> the golden era lost because of that free love movement of the 60s. But we all know that's true, right? I mean, okay, anyway. Um, so his argument is that 
Genesis 3, uh, so he rejects Adam and Eve as a pair. This author does, to be clear. Um, and so he's saying Adam and Eve is the story of paradise lost, in essence, uh, of an idyllic golden age that has been lost, that explains the way that things are. That's a common um, uh, trope, if you will, or pattern or feature mythology in, in, in literature. But he says this uh, as kind of a summary. I'm on page uh, 85 of Lisa and Daniel are, are with me. It's kind of a summary. He says this because he wants to maintain that Genesis 1 to 3 still tells the true story, even if it's not literally true in every way. He says, first and foremost, the creation week, the creation of Adam and Eve, and the fall are the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God. Well, we all agree with that, I hope. The purpose of these chapters is to reveal metaphysical truths, more specifically a divine theology. The messages of faith include foundational beliefs of Christianity. The God of the Bible created the universe and life, number one. Number two, the world is, very, is a very good creation. Number three, men and women are the only creatures made in the image of God. Number four, every person has fallen into sin. And number five, God judges humans for their sinful acts. All committed Christians embrace these inerrant spiritual truths. As far as I'm concerned, these are non-negotiable beliefs. Okay, so he holds those all as beliefs while holding to guided evolution. Um, what's interesting if we look, maybe it would be interesting to look at those statements when we look at the second book, which as you recall is a thought experiment that allows for evolution to have, guided evolution to have taken place. And also Adam and Eve to be historical persons created six to 10,000 years ago, who eventually interbred, that gives us a common ancestor, image of God, fallen to sin. It solves all the theological problems while not disagreeing with any of the science. And the argument is that that could have had, there's nothing to demonstrate that could not have happened. There's no way to prove it did happen. There is no scientific way to prove Adam and Eve are historical persons. Won't happen, cannot happen. Genetically, the information is lost too early. Um, people hope that. In fact, y'all ever heard of, I think it's mitochondrial Eve and chromosomal Adam. Y'all ever heard of those phrases? Okay. The idea is that, oh, <laughs> using our, we can look at mitochondria and 100,000 years ago, it all goes back to one woman. And if you look at chromosomes, they all go back to one man so, so many hundreds of thousands of years ago. And there's a period of overlap uh, where it's like 150,000 to 100,000 years ago with one and 80 to 120,000 years ago with the other. So they, I, I'm making up these numbers, but the idea is that, oh, there's overlap but where we can trace these things to one person. And maybe that really is who Adam and Eve are. But um, the second book really discounts that as plausible or science worth anything at all. Um, the science will not get you to an Adam and Eve. That's kind of the bottom line. But what some of the things that he says, for example, are what the next book are talk about. Men and women are the only creatures made in the image of God. Well, people define image of God differently, number one. And then the question is something like, well, if Adam and Eve interbreed with people outside of the garden, are they, do they give the image of God? Or were people outside of the garden as a result of evolution, did they also have the image of God? These are, these are some of the really interesting questions that sort of come up. Likewise, every person has fallen into sin. Well, what about the people outside the garden, if they existed, right? Did they fall into sin? Were they sinful? And actually, Swamidas offers a kind of an interesting theory that after the fall into sin, historically, if it took place about 6,000 years ago, that's when you begin to see worldwide conflict uh, in ways that you didn't see before. More war, more death, 
things of that nature. We have evidence of, of warfare and, and sin in the world at that point. So it's possible that the people who, again, people, that, that word <laughs> is not agreed upon. So that's part of the issue as well. But for the sake of argument, the people outside the garden, um, you know, let's say that they, um, that maybe they never fell into sin. Okay. So anyway, these are all things to consider, I guess. But yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Planet of the Apes, the uh, the remakes or the. Uh... Yeah, I was gonna say Space Odyssey. Yeah. 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 The obelisk shows up, and then I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. That was filmed in Utah, you said? Oh. Oh, oh, okay. Um, does this book say anything? Yeah. I think the second, I don't, Daniel and Lisa, they, he was saying that there were people who argued that people of color were the people outside the garden, for example, and that's how slavery was justified. I, I know that comes up in maybe both of these books, more in the second one, but I can't remember where. Do, do, do y'all remember that off the top of your head? So, uh, I, I know uh, Wait, hang on, Evan. Sorry. The arguments that, that when you look at racism ham the son of noah who sinned against his father was the one he was said to be a person of color but of course there's nothing in the bible to indicate well jacob and esau are said to be differently different essentially different races as well um that's esau's ruddy complected and curly or does he have curly hair i can't remember well hang on i asked lisa a question i wanted her to answer so Swaminas covers that topic in his book, and uh, he Daniel says he disputes that idea, uh, like of original sin. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah. I think he he says that like classically the church dealt with that by basically pointing to original sin and saying that we can't have separate origins. You know, we 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 have to have a common origin because we all have to kind of derive from Adam. You know, from original sin. That's right. And then I wanted to add for people interested in other resources for um, evidence for like the age of the earth. Um, Davis Young and Ralph Sturley are two Christian geologists and they wrote a book published by University Press called The Bible Rocks and Time. And um, they basically just talk about uh, how I had like their little kind of thesis is that a long geological history is both demanded by the scientific evidence and consistent with the inspired account of creation. And so they're just really well, to, they, they speak really well at that. They, they also include a historical perspective and looking at early Christian viewpoints. And um, they have in the back, they explain carbon dating and other, um, you know, scientific methods so that's just a, it's a really good read um it's it sounds really boring i know but it's actually really interesting 
So the Bible rocks in time is another good, uh, good book. Let me, let me just read a little bit of this too. Um, this, this is about the fossil pattern. And one of the points that this author, again, Dennis Lamoro makes is that if the universe, if the earth is young, then one of the things that we would find is sort of a bunch of fossils together instead of in strata. And so I know nothing about the fossil layer. All right. I'm, I'm not, I, I know absolutely nothing about, I mean, I went to the Grand Canyon and I was like, huh, some of the red rocks are orange and some are red. Interesting. And it's really big and really pretty. Don't fall in. People were taking the craziest selfies at the Grand Canyon. Let me tell you, it's like, I'm hanging on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you know, so. Yeah. And then the, and then the layer of pollution that comes from another continent and drifts all the way over to the Grand Canyon, that kind of ruins the moment, let me tell you. There's not, a, there's not a smog filter on your iPhone, so you just have to live with it. Okay, um, anyway, he says this. <clears throat> Scientific creationism predicts a creation basal layer, quote-unquote, page 87. Even assuming the young Earth creationist belief in Noah's global flood, this evidence would remain in the bottom geological layer because of one simple fact bones and teeth do not float. However, it's obvious that the fossil pattern predicted by young earth creationists does not come close to the actual geological facts. So what he's saying is that you don't find, uh, especially with the, the flood having created this, you don't find, say, human bones mixed with dinosaur bones or something like, or other, you know, or other plant life mixed with, with other animal life, okay? So he's saying that in, this, in the geological strata, you find you know, different things as they, as they evolve. So this is part of his evidence for an old earth. Um, and then he does talk about the, the death in, in Genesis 3. Um, and so you might know that people will, I think I talked about this last week, people talk about death differently. Oh, well, it was a spiritual death. It wasn't physical death. And so if it's only spiritual death, the idea that human beings made the image of God are now alienated from God or something, well, then, that, then, then we can have an old earth because then cycles of life, predation, prey, brown trees falling off of, brown leaves falling off of trees, that's no problem anymore. The death is, death is a natural part of the creation, if you will. Um, but spiritual alienation from God is not natural. That was brought into the world by, by Adam and Eve. Just so you know, these are, the, these are the kind of ways that people go back and forth with one another. Um, so what is the evidence for an old earth and evolution? So he offers evidence for that. Um, and let's see, as I kind of said, he, one of the things that, let me give a few examples. I'll jump to page 96. Um, he says, we can measure the rate of, well, he's talking about, um, different materials, rock strata. Uh, he, he talks about the walls of the Grand Canyon and the sides of the Rocky Mountains. And he's saying that, you know, through accumulations of slow and other, other water, right, you have deposits of sediment. As a result, we can measure the rate of depos dep deposition of each layer and then calculate the age of the lowest layer by simply counting the number of layers. Similarly, measuring the thickness of all the layers can determine the amount of time it took to form them. These three simple examples demonstrate that the Earth is a great deal older than 6,000 years. Um, he also says, coral reefs are made up of limestone that is laid down by the coral animals. These deposits have uh, layers of yearly banding. 
The rate of accumulation is known to be between five and eight millimeters per year. And measuring the thickness of a reef can determine its approximate age. In the Pacific Ocean, the Inuitok reef is more than 4,500 feet thick and estimated to be about 200,000 years old. The Greenland ice sheet, as an example, is two miles thick in some areas and has, although it's melting quickly, I'm told. Anyway, just joke. Anyway, has yearly bands revealing that it is more than 100,000 years old. And so, uh, and these are these are three examples, and they are independent of one another. So it, you have ice in one part of the world, you have the Grand Canyon in another part of the world, you have coral reef in another part of the world, and and the way that they're built is something that takes time, lots and lots of time. Now, I don't really know the arguments against this from a younger point of view. I'm certain that there are many, many, many books written on, on the topic. Is it that it just looks old or what? No, it's that it changes the cosmology of the Earth after the flood and then the ice ages. So that while it looks like it changes, it changes. It doesn't change the essence, right? Okay. So the flood and the ice ages made it actually brought these changes quickly. Yeah. Okay. It did? It did. It, it, it moved. Like it moved in, in I hope that my Google Maps updated that. <laughs> the Brazos River after Harvey changed course. Okay? Yeah, hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> another another argument I've heard. Oh, sorry. No, oh, sorry. Right, because they because they're not in you know polarized action. They're in like you know Africa and Central. Okay. Okay, Lisa. I was just gonna say another argument I've heard against the fossil layers is that God just made the That's earth so look great. like it was old um and i don't well you know I, I don't like that for two reasons first you know you're not gonna get anywhere like with a, a scientist with that like kind of in, it's like invoking you know miracles but also i don't like the idea of god trying to trick us with what we can observe you know i don't know if y'all talked about that last week but you know interesting is, is that a con i mean i don't know if that's something people think about but Yeah, I, I feel like, like when I listen to Ken Ham, for example, um, he really puts the Christian on the defensive in terms of you're either with the Bible or you're not. And if you're with the Bible, you have to believe in a young earth and um, don't believe your lying eyes kind of thing. Like, like it doesn't matter what evidence, you know, comes your way. And, um, you know, I think Ken Ham's a good person. You know, and I, I don't think he's deceit. Once I think he really does love the word of God and he really believes he's defending it. And I, I appreciate that. I have no beef with people like that. Um, I've never watched, but I did read some reviews of the debate he did with Bill Nye. That was a big deal a few years ago. And I heard it was almost totally useless because of the total different worldviews that people were coming from. But I don't know. Um, but one of the one of the things he does talk about, because this has come up a few times, is is 
not just carbon dating, but radioactive dating. And let me just read what he says about radiometric dating, I should say. Uh, I think y'all basically know how this sort of thing works, but let me just read it. He says, radioactive atoms are unstable and naturally decay into other atoms. The rate of change is measurable and is found to be a constant. The measurement of change is known as a half-life, which is defined as the amount of time it takes for half of the radioactive atoms in a sample to change into another type of atom. For example, a radioactive form of potassium turns into the gas argon and has a half-life of, let's see, that is 1,300,000,000 years. Um, and so these are things that I, I guess we know for a fact. I don't know how they know that for a fact. A scientist would have to explain it, but he's, yeah. Yeah. You see how I can say science is real, yeah. but still be false, right? Yeah. So how does carbon dating work? It's the decay of carbon-14. Yeah. If the oxygen levels in any atmosphere or gravity change, does that not affect the data? Radioactive, does that not affect the data? Mm. So we are, we are living, again, as ants trying to explain a world bigger than ourselves. Yeah. Through something that we can calculate, but they could calculate the sun and was wrong about that. Mm. Let me say this is what he says about because um, <clears throat> he does mention carbon 14 right here. He says many Christians assume uh, regarding carbon 14 that that is the technique used to determine the age of the earth. Not true. Carbon 14 is a radioactive atom that decays into carbon 12. However, its half life is quite short, about 5,700 years. After 10 half-lives, just a small fraction of these atoms in the original sample remains making accurate calculations difficult. Therefore, the upper limit of, of this dating method is around 50,000 years. In contrast, potassium, argon, and uranium lead half-lives that are over a billion years, and these are more suitable for calculating the age of the Earth. So again, this is beyond my uh, expertise. I mean, I got a C in like the most basic chemistry class there was, okay? So uh, I do want to be careful here, but... I mean, I, I will, I just do want to say that people will say, they'll say carbon-14 dating is used for such and such. And actually, I think most of the time, carbon-14 dating is not very good, useful for things like that. Yeah. So you could use carbon-14 dating to, you know, see how old some bones in the ground are. Maybe. Maybe, but actually if they're, but if they're dinosaur bones that are hundreds of millions of year old, I, I don't know that carbon 14 might only say they're a few thousand years old. I, I, I don't know. Lisa and Daniel, do y'all have any thoughts on that whole radioactive dating question? Or? So in the, the book I mentioned before, they discuss, you know, they have a table of like 10 radioactive isotopes. And so they, they talk about when, you know, it's important when you're to, to consider which, you know, geological element you're, or, you know, um, formation you're looking at to choose the right site sort of you know dating but um, yeah a lot of people kind of just focus on the carbon dating because that's what they've heard of but there are a lot of other elements that we can look at and they, they talk about you know the mathematical modeling of radioactive decay and how you can uh, per, you know predict the half-lives and we're you know we're confident in those and 
I'm trying to, I don't remember much else from, I haven't, you know, looked at that since sure. college chemistry as well, but. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, I, passed, you passed college chemistry, so I'm already impressed, so. I did, I've just forgotten a lot of it. <laughs> David, do you deal with this stuff at all? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, he, they're giving the example here of like potassium, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I don't know if the name of it is, but I, I think I think his only point is that carbon fourteen becomes the point of controversy, and it really shouldn't be because carbon fourteen the, the the nature of the half life is that it's not good for dating things that are particularly old. So, but maybe maybe to Chris's point, you know, I mean, when you talk about old Earth, I will say this: when you talk about old Earth in billions of years, it is by definition unobservable. So, I, I but. You know, I, that doesn't make it false. Um, just because we can't observe evolution doesn't make it false. But I would say this, it makes it, it I, I would argue in this, and Lisa and Daniel, others might disagree with me, but I would argue it is a theory. Um, it's a theory that explains things. I don't know the extent to which we would say it's a stone cold fact, but then other people say that it is, you know, well-meaning believing Christians. So um, he, he's offering, I think, the best argument for evolution as being a stone cold fact. And, and one of which would again be the fact that if, if the universe and the world <laughs> and the earth were old and there were a global flood, then you would see in the fossil pattern, you know, everything mixed together. Right? You'd see all the different kinds of, you know, but things mixed together. He says this, you see actually in the strata on, this is page 100, an orderly progression in the appearance of life forms indicative of evolution. The pattern for fossil, for fossil plants shows single cells to marine plants, to land plants, to seed bearing plants, to flowering plants. A similar progression appears with animals, single cells, soft bodied marine animals, marine animals with skeletons, jawless fish, jawed fish, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, primates, prehumans, humans. To date, science has yet to find one fossil plant or animal in the Earth's crust that is outside this pattern in the geological column. So anyway, I, I don't know what young Earth does with that particularly. Um, again, I don't consider young Earthers my enemy um, at all. Just so you know, Chris. Sure, sure no, <laughs> I, 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 w I would and I have actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Not true. Not true. Another um, piece of evidence he uses is Pangaea. Remember Pangaea? The idea that all the continents were once one landmass, but they've broken apart. So we know how long it takes, in essence, these plates, these tectonic plates, to drift apart. In fact, uh, you know, I don't know if y'all know this, but it costs more to fly fly to Iceland now because it's 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 two it's two millimeters further from us now. And uh, anyway. Uh, Exactly. Any day now. Right along that border would be, you know, yeah. Gavin Newsom and all of his uh, his uh, non-mask wearing friends can uh, can. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. 
Oh, oh, no, you can't put that in the prayer. No. Yeah. Well, let's not talk about the global politics of <clears throat> states falling into the ocean or, or seceding, for that matter. Um, anyway, Pangea is another point of, um, of, of evidence, he would say, um, for... Yeah. Okay. You just made the statement that uh, they can see the fossil record of single cell organisms. Yeah. What kind of calcium does a single cell organism have that would possibly be a fossil? Well, that's a good question. Let me let me read the whole, and maybe Daniel and Lisa can answer this. The question. Can was, you repeat the question? Yeah. The question was, what kind of, and I might have spoken wrong, but what kind of fossil evidence is there of single cell organisms. Let me read the paragraph from the beginning. Let me actually go back to the pre previous paragraph. Young Earth creationists claim that most of the layers in the Earth's crust were laid down in one year during Noah's flood, which they contend was global. However, two simple features in the geological column and timetable reveal the problem with this anti-evolutionary belief. First, a worldwide flood would produce strata that contain a mixture of all living organisms. We've talked about that. But the scientific facts reveal an orderly progression in the appearance of life forms indicative of evolution. The pattern for fossil plants shows single cells. So the question is, and this is according to a chart that he has that I did not take a picture of and share, but it's a chart that shows uh, 4,600 million years ago, 4.6 billion years, the origin begins. Around, according to this, say, we'll call it 3 billion years, you have single cell life. And so the question is, what kind of fossil does a single cell leave behind? And the answer is, I have no idea. Same with animals. So I don't know. It, did he misspeak when he spoke of fossils or? Uh, so some, you know, not everything is going to be preserved in fossils based on the type of structure it has. It might not hold up, but, you know, we do have like, we're in the age of sequencing. And so there's a lot of DNA sequencing that goes on now um, that talks about, you know, so the, the evolutionary idea is that eukaryotes came about from um, like a prokaryote, a single cell, you know, bacterium or something uh, being engulfed by another cell. And that's basically what makes up our mitochondria today is like this uh, symbiont that has its own, it has its own, its own RNA. And so if you take our mitochondrial RNA and you sequence that, it very closely matches RNA sequences from some bacteria known as alpha proteobacteria. So there's a lot of genetic evidence. I don't know that it would necessarily be preserved by fossil, you know, by fossilization though. So you're saying, would it, I mean, would it, would it have to be the case that if evolution is true, that you would have to have single cell organisms first, right? That would have to be the case, you, right? You have nucleic acid, acids first, 
and okay. then you would form some sort of single celled structure. Yeah. And then you would have two single cell organisms combine essentially to form a eukaryotic organism. Okay. So in, in, there are also things called uh, like ribozymes, which is RNA nucleic material that can actually synthesize its own transcripts um, to form a message. And then once you get from there, you can make protein. So, you know, and that you can form some sort of lipid structure for a bi, like a, a layer, a bilayer, which is, you know, our, we have um, phospholipid bilayers is what makes up our cell membranes. Okay. So it, it is, it is a progression. It's still, you know, I agree with James Tour that we, you know, we don't need to be investigate like the origins of life science is <laughs> you're not going to recapitulate that, but there are, we're not totally in the dark as to how that would have yeah. happened. There is a, it is a progression. And I will throw out as well. Um, and I think I have the book in my office if you want to borrow it or you want the name of it, but it's very scientific and it's all over my head, but I had the author on my radio show maybe four or five years ago now. And um, I, I guess, heard of him or met him at a Reasons to Believe meeting in Houston around that time. He co-wrote a book with several people on the origins of life and the chemical origins of life. So it's not about evolution at all. It's about origins, which is a different question. And it, it looks a lot at the, the idea, you know, that the earth was a primordial soup and something like lightning flashed and, you know, that gave rise to the first amino acid. And he looks at those famous tests that recreated that amino acid and all that they had to go through to try to create that amino acid, uh, create a false environment. Well, a historic environment. The earth used to have more nitrogen than oxygen, blah, blah, blah. And um, anyway, the, the argument um, is that... Uh, they're, they're, uh, well, I don't remember much of the argument, but I mean, his summary, I guess, was, was that, uh, that, that was a pretty bad experiment and a failed experiment and that, um, evolution does not account for origin. And, uh, anyway, the book goes through a lot of science that I don't understand and I can't even remember the name of the author, but, uh, Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're just Cameron and I were just talking about Frankenstein the other day, actually. Um, well, there's more. He gets into bones and teeth um, as evidence for evolution as well. And so maybe we can talk about that next time. Uh, maybe kind of finish up this book because then he talks about human evolution as well. And there's intelligent design as part of this conversation. That's part of like Michael Behe's big argument. He's an he believes in common descent, but he but he he defends intelligent design, which is the idea that that what that that you have a fully formed organism. I mean, this might be what kind of Lisa was talking about, where like in a cell you have parts of the cell that can't work without the other, and there's kind of no way of explaining how it got there if it wasn't created or intelligently designed. But that's kind of an argument for a different day, perhaps. Um, so the, these are some of his arguments for old earth and, and, and evolution. Uh, make of them what you will, um, but, but from his point of view, it, it's, not, it's not even a question, from this author's point of view, it's not even a question that the, that the earth is old and that evolution is a reality. Um, and if it's a reality in the universe and on our planet, why wouldn't it be true of human beings as well? But remember, he does affirm Things like image of God, fall into sin, 
So maybe our, our question for him isn't on the science. It's, well, how do you explain, how do you defend those things if you don't defend the other things? How do you bridge that gap? And I don't think this author does, and I think Daniel and Lisa and I all agree, I don't think he does a particularly good job of doing that. I don't know that you can do a particularly job of doing it. I mean, you're kind of left saying, well, all of a sudden there were people and they had a sense of what was right and wrong, but we're not really sure how. But any last thoughts from you guys, Daniel and Lisa? I, I have to go early because Gibran isn't here and I have to get the live stream going, so. No, thanks for leading us. Okay, let's have a prayer and then we'll go. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for each day. We give you thanks for creating us and calling us, uh, making us into your image and calling us to a life of obedience. Give us your spirit that we would always be obedient to your will for our lives and bless the worship that we're about to enjoy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.